If you have your Bible, then I will invite you to turn to Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. Acts chapter 6, I will begin by reading from verse 8. So brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, let me begin by asking you a question. Have you ever had to stand alone? Stand alone to make a defense before a figure who is like a judge or an examiner? Have you ever had to stand alone to make a defense before a figure who is like a judge or an examiner? Now, I'm pretty sure that all of us may have to do that at some point in our life. For instance, it could be a job interview where you may have to stand alone or sit alone before the interviewers. Or it could have been a time where you were called to be in the principal's office or your boss's office. Or it could have been a time where you had to give an excuse or a reason for why you decided to break the rules, the family rules. Or it could have been a time when you did your driver's license test as you were driving beside the examiner. So what did, it, what did it feel like during those moments? Intimidated, uh, frightened, nervous, uh, anxious, or unresponsive? Hopefully not unresponsive while you're driving. What if you had to stand alone as Christians, as a Christian on trial where your life is at stake? Uh, sometimes, Godly believers, the saints, may have to stand alone for their faith, and this can be demonstrated both in biblical history and in church history. Just a few examples. If you remember the story of Elijah, Elijah had to stand alone when he faced the false prophets in 1 Kings chapter 18. And the apostle Paul also stood alone. He said that he said this in 2 Timothy 4:16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. And if you remember Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, he stood alone at the Diet of Worm, where he was called by the Pope to recant all the theological books that he has written and some of the criticisms that he made regarding the practice of PayPal authority and indulgences. 
Of course, Luther did not recant, and Rome condemned him and executed him from the church and pronounced Luther as a heretic. Yet at the same time, all these people were not alone. God promised his people that he will never leave them nor forsake them. Paul said later on that the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message of the gospel, the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles might hear it. And as we have just read this passage, we learn that Stephen will stand alone. I just cannot begin to imagine what it was like to be in the shoes of Stephen. However, after reading and studying this text, I just can't help but be amazed by this man. You see, Stephen was probably an extraordinary man. He wasn't an apostle of Jesus Christ. We do not know too much about him besides Acts chapter 6 and 7. Nothing is known about his personal life, his parents, his siblings, or whether he had a wife or children. However, what is known about him is what is truly important. We know that he's a Hellenist, meaning that he was a Greek-speaking Jew. We also know that the church chose him as one of the seven men to handle the daily distribution of the widows. He probably became a follower of Jesus Christ after hearing the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. We also know that Stephen was a man of good repute and of integrity, according to Acts 6.3. However, no one, no one came to defend his character. He was standing alone before trial, and he did not have the apostles by his side. He had no one to confirm that he's a messenger of God. Stephen's appearance in Scripture was short-lived, but he still remained faithful in the face of hostility and pending death. But how? How did Stephen stand alone with courage and faithfulness before his trial and adversity? I think it's because he had a noble character. See, regardless of whether you will ever face persecution like Stephen, and regardless of how long you've been a Christian, it is important for all Christians to pursue godliness and, and uh, cultivate character. You see, this message I want to present to you this morning is that to faithfully and courageously stand alone before adversity, you must have godly character. To faithfully and courageously stand alone before adversity, you must have godly character. And before we get into the text, let me just first set up the foundation for understanding godly character in Scripture. Now, I don't mean that new Christians cannot stand alone before adversity and being a witness for Christ. It doesn't mean that you need to wait until you're spiritually mature before you can go and witness to your friends and family members. Uh, you know, I have known some brothers and sisters in Christ who were radically saved from their sins and became passionate about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And they were willing to be discipled, and they were willing to be taught the word of God, and they were so passionate about telling others what God has done for them. But nonetheless, all believers, whether old or new, must aim to be like Christ and aim to grow in godly character. Scripture is very clear about the importance of character. And if you are born again Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Furthermore, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter said that God's divine power has given you all things to live a godly life through his knowledge. And then he said this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is implying that if these qualities, if you're not growing in these qualities, then you will be unproductive. And really, literally, what Peter is saying is that you'll be useless in the Lord's work. Your Christian life will not be effective, and this can include being a witness for Christ. A pastor once commented that godly character gives the most solid foundation for powerful witness, especially when the witness is persecuted. God often uses the person's godly character under fire to convict those to whom he is bearing verbal witness. And this certainly applies to the illustration that Jesus gave about building your house on the rock. Jesus was speaking about those who listen to his word and apply them. And those who do those things, those who listen to Jesus' word and apply them, are those who lay the foundation of their house on the rock. And when natural catastrophe comes, the house will not be shaken. And the natural catastrophe can represent trials, persecution, tribulations, and adversities. You see, the more you allow the Word of God to dwell in you, not only should you understand what it says, it ought to compel you to do what it says, and it ought to sanctify you and grow you in in your character by pointing out sins in your life where you need to repent of. So I want to emphasize this, because this idea of godly character will hopefully be at the forefront of your minds as we come to this text and ascertain and apply this passage into our lives to faithfully and courageously stand alone before adversity you must have godly character and so i have three lessons for us to consider as we learn about stephen here three lessons first stephen was a man with godly character stephen was a man with godly character now from the previous passage we have learned some of the qualification of those who will serve tables. But I want to elaborate on some of them and cover all the other characters that Stephen possessed. Some of the characters will complement one another and overlap with one another to some degree. See, first, we remember in verse 3 that Stephen was a man of good repute. He was a man of good repute. And it's worth repeating that the qualification of leaders is that they must have good reputation. They must have integrity. They are to be well attested by others favorably that you are a man or a woman of God. This is common sense. If you want to be entrusted with ministry responsibility, then you are to have integrity. And by having a good reputation, you can then set a godly example for others to follow. 
We also see back in verse 3 and even later in verse 5 that Stephen was full of the Spirit. He was full of the Spirit. Now, this does this did not mean that Stephen was experiencing some sort of spiritual high or some sort of ecstatic experience. It didn't mean that Stephen had all the gifts of the Spirit. To be full means to be filled up. Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. It meant that he allowed himself to be directed and guided by the Spirit of God as he regularly immersed himself in the Spirit-inspired Word, which is the Bible. Thus, by being filled with the Spirit, he was walking and living by the Spirit, and he was keeping in step with the Spirit so as to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Certainly, the Holy Spirit empowered Stephen in this passage to be prepared for the trial that he's about to face and give his defense. We remember Jesus' promise in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 to 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, there is something very powerful about this statement when you're placed under a similar pressure and situation. I think it's an experience that is rather hard to articulate. You see, in those moments, and I've experienced it in some, in some uh, moments in my life, uh, in those moments, in those experiences, you may ha not have the Bible in your hand, but the Spirit of God, God the Spirit, will give you the words to recall in those moments, to say what you need to say. And so, Stephen was full of the Spirit. And we also see back in verse 3 that Stephen was full of wisdom. He was full of wisdom. Wisdom wasn't some sort of a sophisticated or intellectual saying. It wasn't comprehending some philosophical discourse. Uh, it wasn't necessarily being eloquent per se. That was more the Greek culture, of their understanding of wisdom. But in the, in the Jewish understanding, wisdom meant skills. Uh, it meant learning to live skillfully in life, uh, such as knowing how to be skillful administrator and manager and whole lot more. See, wisdom requires one to make good judgment. And Stephen was then qualified to handle the financial situation with the widows. Moreover, wisdom was taught in the, in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, such as the book of Proverbs. With Stephen was full of the wisdom because he was full of the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And this includes having biblical and theological knowledge and a practical wisdom in applying scriptural truths in different situations in life. You see, even in New Testament, wisdom expands at a greater height because God's wisdom is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And for those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, who have a relationship with God, He is the power of God, 
and He is the wisdom of God. Knowing Christ is so important for us as Christians. And knowing Christ is perhaps the most foolish thing in the eyes of the world, but is the wisest thing in the eyes of God. For Stephen, he knew Christ at a personal level. He had the treasure of scriptural knowledge at his arsenal. And even the Jews in verse 10 couldn't even refute him. Stephen was a faithful witness as he raised the cross of Christ as the wisdom of God in the eyes of the Jews. So he was full of wisdom. And we see in verse 5 that Stephen was full of faith. He was full of faith. He was a man who fully trusted in the Lord. And if you're full of the Holy Spirit and if you're full of wisdom, then surely you should also be full of faith because you're so absorbed in God's word that you don't just know it, but you believe in it and trust in the God who worked through redemptive history in the Bible. You will trust in the God who works out all things for good to those who love him, including using evil to work out his glorious purpose. Also, what's also fascinating about Stephen is that as a Jew, Stephen believed that Jesus was truly the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he's a fulfillment of the messianic prophecy of the Old Testament. He believed that Christ came to die on the cross for sinners, to be raised on the third day, and that he was ascended back to the right hand of the throne of the Father. He fully believed in this message of the gospel of salvation. Many Jews, unfortunately, rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And as a man who was saved by grace through faith, he not only believed in Christ upon salvation, but he will continuously walk and live by faith. So oftentimes people just think, oh, just believe in Christ for salvation, and that's it. But no, that's not the, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life, as it, as it says in Scripture, that the righteous shall live by faith. We don't just trust Christ, superficially just trust Christ for our future destination as if trusting Christ is a ticket to heaven. But we also trust Christ in everyday situation. And oftentimes, don't we all struggle to trust him in the everyday mundane life? Furthermore, Stephen was a man who demonstrated his faith by doing good works, all for the glory of God. He demonstrated his faith by his obedience to the Lord and doing what God called him to do. And this makes him a man of integrity. He was not a man of contradiction. He was not a man of hypocrisy. He was a man of integrity. And even before his martyrdom, Stephen continuously entrusted his life to the sovereign Lord. He refused to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not recant of his faith and all that he said to the Jewish leaders. He knew where he will be, and he asked the Lord to receive his spirit. And he's confident that God was taking care of him. So I wonder if that can be described of you today. Are you a Christian who is full of faith? We also see in verse 8 that Stephen was full of grace. He was full of grace. This is the same thing said of Jesus. 
in John chapter 1, verse 14, that he was full of grace and truth. Stephen exemplifies such grace because he knew and he understood God's grace shown to unworthy sinners like himself. Grace is the unmerited favor. It is a gift given to someone who is undeserved. See, a man or woman who experienced God's grace through the cross of Christ will also become a person who shows grace to others, even Christians who often fail. We must be men and women of grace. This means showing patience and kindness and winsomeness and forgiveness to others. As witnesses of Christ, we can be gracious towards unbelievers because we recognize we were once in their shoes. They didn't believe. You know, for us, we were spiritually blind to the good news. Our hearts were hardened towards God. We didn't trust the Lord. And so we need to be full of grace to others because others don't always believe in Jesus immediately. So we need to be patient with them as well. Stephen was a gracious man. God's grace essentially flowed out of him and to others. Stephen didn't curse those who stoned him. He didn't fight back. Rather, he asked God to forgive them and not to hold this sin against them, even though they did not deserve it. And lastly, we see in verse 8 that Stephen was full of power. He was full of power. And that's in verse 8. This was the result of being full of the Spirit. He was able to manifest signs and wonders among the people. It was also the same power that's closely linked to the apostles in chapter 5. However, how was Stephen able to perform miracles? Because remember, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 states that signs and wonders and miracles were the signs of a true apostle. And Stephen wasn't an apostle. Signs and wonders were to authenticate that the apostles were God's messengers. And so my, my response to that question would be, in the early church, outside of the apostles, only Stephen and Philip and Barnabas were reported to have performed miracles. And I think those, were, those three were just exceptional cases. Luke tells us that they were exemplary men. And in the case of Stephen and Philip, two of the seven men in Acts chapter 6 verse 5, Luke dedicates a few chapters talking about them while he doesn't talk much about the other five men. Christians performing miracles is not meant to be normative, but we can trust and believe that God is still performing miracles around the world that align with his sovereign will and for his glorious purposes. But being full of power also means being courageous and bold and speaking the truth and defending the truth. Stephen here, not only was he full of grace, but he was also, it was also balanced with being bold and courageous to proclaim a hard message, a hard message for the Jews to swallow. You see, if you're convinced of what God says in his word, and what he teaches, then not only will God's word empower you by the spirit of God, you should manifest power and strength to live for the glory of God and to endure trials and adversity and to even do so joyfully and with gratitude. And if unbelievers see us going through trials and with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving, they can, and they ask us about it, 
then this gives us a chance to be a powerful witness for Christ. And so those were Stephen's godly characters. Those were Stephen's godly characters. So which of the quality, character qualities that Stephen had, had do you need to work on right now? Which of these ones do you need to work on right now? How will you go about working on it? And now, going to this passage, we will see that Stephen's godly character was the basis for his faithfulness and courage before adversity. Stephen's godly character was the basis for his faithfulness and courage before adversity. See, when verses 8 to 10, we see what you would call a debate or an argument here. See, after Stephen was doing signs and wonders among the people, these people in verse 9 rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, did these people rise up and dispute Stephen because of signs and wonders, or was it because he was teaching in the synagogue? You know, both reasons could be plausible, but it's unclear in the Greek what caused them to be so stirred up with, the, with Stephen. But the men here were from a synagogue. A synagogue was a gathering place for the Jews to practice their Judaism, but they rejected or maybe they were ignorant of Jesus as the Messiah. The synagogue was a place dedicated to biblical instruction and worship and prayer and the reading of the Old Testament. And Jesus did attend the synagogue, and he read the scripture in Luke chapter 4. Now, it is not sure, it's not certain as to whether there's one synagogue with all these folks here, or whether there were multiple synagogues. But the list given here in verse 9 is quite significant, because they're all from the Greek background. This particular synagogue, or maybe synagogues, was designed specifically for the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. The freedmen were the descendants of Jews who were taken as prisoners of war by the Romans in 63 BC, but they were released. They were free. And then there were the Cyrenians. They were the Cyrenians. If you remember, if you remember Simon of Cyrene was the man who, carried, who helped Jesus carry the cross. He was a Hellenistic Jew. And then you have the Alexandrian. Lord willing, we'll learn about Apollos, who was a native of Alexandria in Acts 18-24. And then the other places, one of the places listed here was Cilicia. And this is very important, because the Apostle Paul was from Cilicia, a province in southern, southern Asia Minor. And he may have been one of the debaters here who could not cope with Stephen's wisdom. And then there's Asia. We're not talking about the modern Asian continent here. Uh, this was the Roman province in Western Asia Minor. And when we'll get to learn a little bit about those locations as we study Paul's missionary journey in Acts 13 and onwards. But if you remember, Stephen was a Hellenist. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. He wanted to reach out to the people in his own culture. But we remember what Jesus said. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And so after trying to dispute Stephen, they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Their own traditions and their own human wisdom couldn't 
outmatch Stephen's character of being full of wisdom and full of the Spirit. What Stephen most likely had said to them is regarding the temple and Moses and the law. Most likely, Stephen may have told the Jews that Jesus was greater than the temple, greater than Moses, and the fulfillment of the law. Perhaps because of that, they were stirred up and they tried to dispute him. The temple, Moses, and the law will become important topics as new, as in this passage here, as the new community of Christ followers who still adhere to Jewish practices relate to them. And then there are, there are going to be topics that these people use to mischaracterize Stephen. And there are also going to be the topics that Stephen will highlight in his long defense in chapter 7. But what you, need, what you need to know here in this passage is that Stephen was an excellent debater. He was also an excellent public speaker. No one was able to win an argument against him. No one was able to call logical fallacy against him. No one was able to convince him otherwise of his viewpoints. Essentially, they lost the debate, and Stephen won the debate. And Stephen was able to defend his faith and presumably prove that Jesus was Messiah. However, winning debates do not always equate to winning people to Christ. In fact, performing miracles isn't enough to save people. See, those who are prideful will always find ways to get around the situation. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're, you don't know anything about Jesus Christ and nothing has convinced you. But however, only God can save you ultimately. Only God can save you through the proclamation of the gospel. Those who are prideful will always find a ways to get around the situation, and especially religious leaders who are very hard-hearted. See, having been unsuccessful in silencing Stephen in an open debate, they mischaracterize him and falsely accuse him as a blasphemer. Don't, don't we sometimes see, see, uh, see this in debates when the conversation gets very heated? And one party can't defend his position, can't defend their position, as if they go on attacking the character of the other party. And that's called ad hominem. That's called ad hominem, attacking the character rather than attacking the idea. And so in verses 11 to 14, the Jews here take two actions here, two different actions. First, setting up liars to malign Stephen. Second, stirring up the crowds and authorities to take physical action. They were physically aggressive and they physically arrested him. See, the Jews here set up false witnesses to falsely accuse him of being a blasphemer. To be blasphemous means to defame, to denigrate, to demean, to revile, or to insult. Stephen was falsely accused of speaking words of insult against Moses and God. These Jews were zealous about their religion. And it's interesting to note in verse, at the end of verse 11 that they mention Moses first and then God. Moses precedes God here instead of the other way around. It should have been God and Moses since God should primarily or even exclusively be the one who's blasphemed. 
In order to blaspheme God, one has to speak his name in vain. You know, you shall not take the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who take his name in vain. But blasphemy can also speak of evil things um, that God deemed sacred, which was the law of Moses in the temple. Blasphemy was a serious crime. And the consequence of blasphemy is capital punishment, which is death. And because of Stephen's alleged blasphemy, the news spread to the people and to the Jewish authorities. For the past few chapters, we have only seen the religious leaders persecuting the the apostles. But here, this is the first time that normal citizens turn on Christians like Stephen, along with the religious leaders, because they were also zealous for Moses and God. And that got them riled up, that got them stirred up, that got them worked up by the false charges against Stephen. And so in verse 12, they all rested and brought Stephen before the Jewish council known as the Sanhedrin. And we remember those people back in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and chapter 5, verse 18. Now, notice this word in verse 12 that Luke uses, which is seized him. This was a violent force. It, is, it means being dragged and pulled against one's will. And this word is used later on in Acts 27, where the Apostle Paul was in the ship with a bunch of other people, and the ship was being forced, uh, was forced to be dragged by a strong wind. Stephen was dragged before the, before the Sanhedrin, just like the apostles. However, this time, as I mentioned, Stephen was standing alone and waiting to be prosecuted. And he wasn't with anybody. He didn't have a partner with him. He didn't have any defenders. He didn't have anyone to defend him. And in verse 13, we see that these people set up false witnesses to further the deception and repeat the charges in verse 11. They're most likely the same people. Although blasphemy is a serious offense, the irony is that false witness is equally a serious offense in the eyes of God. See, these people are so hypocritical. These religious people are so hypocritical that they're zealous over one part of the law but they transgress and break the other part of the law by breaking one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Notice that the false witnesses here, they did not speak falsely by putting words in Stephen's mouth. Rather, what they did was twist. They twisted what he may have said in the debate. In the words of F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar in the 20th century, he said that it was a subtle and deadly misrepresentation of words actually spoken. If you look at verses 13 to 14, they said that this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, which was a temple, and the law, which was the law of Moses in the Old Testament. But how did Stephen, according to the false witnesses, speak against the holy place and the law? They said in verse 14, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses 
deliver to us. Notice here in verse, this verse, it shows that the Jews have a contempt against Jesus. They speak against him by identifying, as, identifying him as oh, this Jesus of Nazareth. By indicating his upbringing in Nazareth, the Jews remember and knew that there's nothing good that comes from Nazareth because people didn't like Nazareth back then. But none of these charges were true. Jesus did. He did speak about the destruction of the temple. He was prophesying about the destruction of, of the temple that would happen in AD 70. Uh, that would be the, the temple where the temple would be destroyed by the Romans during the siege of Jerusalem. However, Jesus never once said that he would destroy this place, which was the temple. He did say to his opponents back in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the apostle John explained that this temple that he was referring to was his body, not the physical temple in Jerusalem. Additionally, Jesus never said that he'll change the customs that Moses delivered. Now, customs as in the written and oral tradition that was passed down, Jesus did say that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He did come to fulfill them. He came to fulfill them. And having fulfilled them, he established and inaugurated the new covenant that supersedes the old covenant. And by fulfilling, the, and by fulfilling them, there is, in a sense, a change in the ways that Jews should view the law now. Thus, there's no need to continue with the sacrificial and ceremonial law, which was you know, sacrificing animals for the forgiveness of sin. And perhaps Stephen was proclaimed the good news, the tremendous good news of Jesus Christ, where his death, his sacrifice was sufficient to atone for sin, and that there was no need to continue with the animal sacrifices. And that's probably what Stephen told them. However, the accusers took the words of Stephen and twisted them to make them sound like he was a revolutionary and wanted to overthrow Judaism. They turned his proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ into a negative attack on the law. But that's not the case. In fact, the apostles and Stephen they, they, had, they had an enormous respect for Moses and the law. The followers of Jesus, they did not change anything about the law. They did not disobey the law. In fact, we remember chapter 3 that they still went to the temple for the hour of prayer. They still identified themselves as Jewish, but they have now recognized who their Messiah was, and that was Jesus. Luke wants to show us here in this passage that the trial of Stephen was just unfair and unjust. Despite all of that, however, Stephen's godly character did not, sh not th these things did not shake him. They did not shake his godly character. His courage will shine through all the darkness of this ordeal. And he continued to remain bold and faithful until the end he didn't compromise his faith. 
nor did he apologize for what he taught and believed. And here in verse 15, we literally see how his courage shines through. And that is what Luke says here. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This was a rare, a unique situation in the New Testament. This points us back to the time when Moses' face was radiated after he received the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. Moses' face reflected and radiated the glory of God, and the people couldn't even gaze upon Moses' face. I'm not suggesting that this was exactly what Stephen experienced, although it's possible. Many different commentators had chimed in on this, what it meant. I can say, however, that this doesn't mean that Stephen was merely an innocent little angel, although he was innocent and he suffered injustice. His face was aglow before the presence of the Sanhedrin, and this was a similar situation to that of Jesus' transfiguration. But, Jesus, but Stephen's face transfigured to look like the face of an angel. Daryl Bach suggested that Stephen's has the appearance of one inspired by and in touch with God, reflecting a touch of God's glory. Perhaps God showed his approval of Stephen's ministry and teaching in exactly the same way he did that of Moses. And in context here, if you remember this context here, since the Sanhedrin took issues with Stephen in regards to the law of Moses and the temple, this shows that Stephen is the better interpreter of Moses than they are. And perhaps, though Stephen was alone, though no one defended him, God was with him in this situation. And God, by doing this, defended him. And this is fascinating because there's no other person in the New Testament besides Jesus who experienced this. Not Peter, not Paul, not John, but Stephen. And I don't think there will ever be a time in history where someone's face will radiate like that. That's why I find Stephen's character here very fascinating. See, in the trial of Stephen, I hope that we have seen how his godly character enabled him to faithfully and courageously stand alone before adversity. But more than that, there is more than that, which is the last lesson here for us to consider, and that is Stephen's life parallel with the life of Jesus. Being a Christian means being a follower and imitator of Christ. When we do suffer for being a Christian, we are reminded that we share in Christ's suffering. With Stephen, however, when you consider the account of his life, you will find many similarities to that of Jesus. It's like comparing apple to apple. Both appear in a trial-like setting. Both suffer the testimony of false witnesses. Both trials mention the temple's destruction. Both trials speak of the temple made with hands. Both were falsely charged with blasphemy. Both were asked by the high priest to speak. 
Both committed their spirits to God. Both experienced capital punishment. And both asked God to forgive those killing them. Truly, Stephen was a remarkable man who not only counted all joy to suffer for Christ's sake and to share in his suffering, but who was very much conformed in the image of Christ. The only difference is that Jesus experienced all of that as the God-man, as the God-man. And he, Jesus Christ, he became the perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty of sins to those who trust him and to be raised by God on the third day. And if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, this is a good news for you. This Jesus is, was the one, he is the one, whom Jesus places trust for his salvation. This Jesus is the one whom Stephen committed his life in following and obeying, even though it will cost him his life. This is the life, this is the Jesus whom Stephen loved, even unto death. And that's really the cost of discipleship. And that's really the cost of what it means to follow Christ for all Christians. But it is a good life, isn't it? it is etern- there's eternal life, there's church family, we have a relationship with God. That's what Stephen experienced. And so when you look at the list of godly characters, they really speak of Jesus, don't they? How is that going for you? If you are a born-again Christian, and yet maybe this morning you do not see the godly character being manifested in your life, or maybe you need to work on some of them, then I encourage you to ask God this morning to give you the godly character of Stephen, really the godly character of Jesus, so that you will be a courageous witness for Christ's sake. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this message. We thank you for this passage. Oh, what a wonderful way to examine a life who was, who was short-lived in Scripture. We would have wished maybe we see more of Stephen, but what is truly revealed to us is what is important. And I pray that for those of us who are struggling in our life, to cultivate godly character, I pray that you would help them. Help them to grow. Help them to abide in you. And by abiding in you, they can produce fruit. And by abiding in you, and that your word abide in them, they would, be, they would demonstrate that they are indeed your disciples. Father, please sanctify us and forgive us for the times where we have failed to live for you. And we do fall short. We do fall short of being of good repute, being full of the Spirit, being full of faith, being full of grace, and all these other things. But we know that your grace is sufficient. We know that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty of our sins and that his grace should motivate us to live for his glory. 
And I pray that this morning that we will continue to recommit ourselves to you, to standing bold and courageous in our Christian life and not be shaken by, um, by trials, by adversities. Even though sometimes it does, I pray that you will continue to grant us extra measure of character, godly character, and growth in those areas so that we can tell and proclaim others about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll be with us this week and help us to continue to ponder your word, what you have to say to us, and apply them into our lives. This I pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.